This is a State of the Union on Antibiotic Stewardship. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm joined today by Dr. Stephen Brown, the staff physician at Mercy Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, and medical director of the Lung Injury Center, which is a medical legal consultation service. Dr. Brown, great to have you with us. My pleasure. So let's start with the basics. What is antibiotic stewardship? Antibiotic stewardship is the recognition that we need to be responsible with regard to who we prescribe antibiotics to and the consequences of overprescribing antibiotics or underprescribing antibiotics or prescribing the wrong dose or duration of antibiotics and its effect on society as a whole. So I'm going to take a wild stab at it and, and say that on the national and global scales, we haven't been too great in this regard. In the United States, we've been doing really poorly. Great Britain, not that much better. In other countries throughout the world, uh, for example, in the Netherlands, their marks are much better with regard to prescribing antibiotics and avoiding the overprescription of antibiotics. And do you attribute that to defensive practice in the United States of litigation woes, uh, fears by practitioners, or is it just poor standards of practice among the United States practitioners? Part of it is uh, defensive medicine, but I think it's more than defensive medicine. I think it's the fact that we have in the United States this uh, game show mentality that, that you, you go on to a game show and then even if you lose, you, you still leave with a, a parting gift. Or if you go to a, a kid's party, you leave with a goodie bag. And when you go to a doctor's office, there's an expectation that you're going to leave with a prescription, that it's a way of validating the fact that you've been ill, that, that your respiratory infection has made you take off time from school or take off time from work or have to get daycare for your kids or do something out of your life to come to a doctor's office, and you need to be validated. And the way you validate it is by getting a uh, prescription. Many people, especially those with acute bronchitis, will present the physician with a common dilemma. They will say to the doctor, I'm going to a meeting in Los Angeles. It's the meeting of my life. I have a cough and a sore throat, and I need an antibiotic because this is the meeting of my life, and I don't want to miss it. Or this is my vacation time, and I work all year long, and I get 10 days off a year, and I don't want to be sick from my trip to Florida, and I need an antibiotic because I have a tickle. And for the majority of those patients, specifically with acute bronchitis, the infective agent, if there is any infective agent, is viral and does not require antibiotics. But it's hard to convince someone who is under pressure and who doesn't want to miss work, doesn't want to miss school, that you can just reassure them. I think one of the important things that I mentioned when I lecture about this is that it is important to acknowledge that a patient is ill. It's important to validate that by verbally just saying, I'm so sorry you're sick. I recognize that you're not feeling well. And because patients do have an expectation that they're going to leave with something, have them leave with advice as to how to manage. And sometimes have them leave if they're going to leave with a prescription or recommendations for medicines, things that will make them feel better while the infection is running its course with assurances that you're available should things develop into a situation where an antibiotic might be necessary. So medications that make people comfortable include decongestants. They might include antihistamines. They might include antitussive agents, especially those which contain either codeine or hydrocodone. 
you know, the, the Robitussin ACs and Tussian X and uh, generic Wifenacin with codeine or hydrocodone. Those medications are very helpful in relieving cough, allowing people to get a good night's sleep. But we need to be very careful with regard to the antibiotics that we're prescribing because we don't really have a lot of antibiotics that are out there that we can choose from. Let's move in on that. Um, what is the state of affairs regarding new antibiotic development, especially along the oral and solid antibiotics phase of research and or development in the United States? I've attended meetings, including uh, this meeting at uh, Chest in Austin. I've attended meetings for the Infectious Disease Society of America. I've walked through poster sessions where there are rooms the size of a high school gymnasium, poster after poster after poster. And what's the research in, in antibiotics? HIV, antiviral, a lot of bench research, but in terms of new antibiotic, we just don't see any new antibiotics on the horizon. What you have now in 2014, 2015 is going to be the same drugs that you're going to be dealing with and have to choose from in 2025. There have been so many antibiotics which have come to market and which have failed in the past 20 years. Ketek, Tequin, several quinolone antibiotics have come and gone because of side effects. It's just not worth investing the research in it. As a matter of fact, the Food and Drug Administration has actually stated that future studies on antibiotics are not even warranted. So what we have that's out there is what we can use. We have the penicillin class. We've got amoxicillin, amoxicillin clavulinate, branded uh, name uh, Augmentin. Uh, we have the tetracycline class, which is primarily doxycycline. We have the sulfa class, which is uh, sulfa methoxazole, generic Bactrim. We have the macrolide antibiotics that are out there, of which there's erythromycin, azithromycin, and clarithromycin, or ZPAC, or Zithromax, and, and biaxin are the branded names. And you know, some of the cephalosporins, but nothing really new that's that's coming out. And these have all been around for quite some time and have been amply exposed by bacteria. Is that correct? I mean, we've exactly. had... <laughs> yeah, and antibiotic resistance is growing rapidly, and it's a serious problem. Let's take, for example, the quinolone antibiotics that are available right now there. There's levofloxacin, there's ciprofloxacin, and there's moxifloxacin are the three quinolone antibiotics that are out there uh, primarily at this time. When they first came out we saw complete knockouts uh, of these drugs with regard to E. coli, for example. But you can go into critical care units in major metropolitan areas. Look at the antibiogram of your local hospital, and you'll see that E. coli, which should just roll over and die in the face of Cipro, is now resistant to Cipro because of its overuse and overuse of, of levofloxacin. Of particular interest to pulmonologists like myself, are two uh, disease entities, cystic fibrosis and bronchiectasis. Both of them are associated with a common community-acquired infection, which is Pseudomonas aeruginosa. When we look at what antibiotics are available to treat Pseudomonas aeruginosa in terms of pill form, we've got Cipro, we've got Levaquin, or Ciprofloxacin, Levofloxacin, and then we've got, we've got, that's it. That's all we have. We have inhaled antibiotics, like inhaled tobramycin, which is cumbersome. And otherwise, if you've got cystic fibrosis and you've got pseudomonas and you're resistant to levofloxacin, which is happening like 40% of the time now, you wind up getting a PICC line. You wind up getting intravenous antibiotics, which is a big encumbrance, a big expense. 
and a bigger morbidity associated with having to use uh, intravenous antibiotics. So we really need to be careful in our use because we really don't have anything new that's coming down the pipeline. And that's different than it was 30 years ago where we'd say, oh, we'll just use these antibiotics until something new comes out. But there's nothing new coming out. So clearly we're in a very, very bad state of affairs. We're, we're in a, a state in which uh, multidrug resistance is increasing exponentially, as you would expect. Meanwhile, um, research and development into introducing new drugs is almost non-existent, if not completely non-existent. Where does that leave hospital systems um, in their formularies, for instance? You talked about a number of second-line, third-line sort of treatments uh, that people move in on, but not all hospitals even have those those options dealing with their patients. Where does that leave hospitals in one year, two years, five years, ten years, or even 25 years based on the projections that you've given us? I think that while it is a, a serious problem, uh, the resistance has leveled off in the past decade. Uh, it was a real serious crisis to the point that antibiotic resistance made the cover of, of Time and Newsweek back around uh, uh, 1994. That's when we first started recognizing that this was a serious issue. And while it is a s serious issue, at least the problem has leveled off. So what has been helpful has been more responsible use of antibiotics, protocols, uh, uh, computerized order sets, which help give physicians guidelines into the use of antibiotics in the hospital setting has been helpful. Guidelines such as those which emphasize de-escalation of antibiotics, treating an infection broadly, but then once you've identified what the organism is, backing off and treating more specifically. Guidelines which advise us as to the duration of therapy so we don't treat for too long a period of time have been very helpful for treating patients. The problem is more in the outpatient setting where, especially if you're outside of a hospital system and you don't have the guidelines that we see less responsible use of antibiotics. The, the primary care physician's office where they're seeing 40 patients in a day and it takes longer to argue with a patient to tell them that they don't need an antibiotic than to give them a Z-pack and send them out of the office. And it's just, it's harder to do that. And when you have a patient who's uh, telling you that they're going to the meeting of their life and they need a ZPAC because the ZPAC worked the last time, you know, what are you going to do? So th that's, the, that's the challenge for physicians in, uh, you know, at this time. Well, we often talk about that pressure, that, that selective peer pressure that people in the front lines of care receive. And it's, it, it sounds very socially governed. It's a sense of my practice will be disrupted if I don't just get this patient out of there and, and give them what is almost the equivalent of a placebo. I already know it's probably a viral in origin. I'm going to give them to him anyway because... It's probably not going to affect, you know, this N of one individual is probably not going to affect the overall drug resistance in my community. Often it's what people use as rationalization. But is there some sort of policy shift that could create a more negative reinforcement model beyond just guidelines if it's been ineffective thus far for people to follow in, on primary care circuits? What do you think would be a more effective way to boost that compliance among physicians on the front lines? I really don't have a good solution. I suspect that some of it may come through managed care. Uh, some of it may come by uh, creating disincentives financially for physicians to uh, prescribe uh, antibiotics for disease entities that where an antibiotic may not be obvious. You can get around that in the way you code or you diagnose the patient to some extent. Um, but looking at the frequency of uh, antibiotic prescriptions may also cause certain physicians to, who are outliers to be identified 
and then there may be opportunities for education for physicians who have high anabolic prescribing practices. And sometimes it may be just the nature of their, their practice. Some physicians may have a lot of patients with COPD and chronic bronchitis where antibiotics are necessary. But there may be ways to identify persons who are frequently prescribing antibiotics. That certainly would be, uh, it should be identifiable somehow. And I don't want to jump into the world of complete science fiction or speculative fiction, but in the wake of increasing multidrug resistance, are there any other types of uh, theoretical or potential or even existent treatments that are totally off-kilter from the antibiotic mechanism of action? Um, people often like to throw around terms such as nanotech and other things that might come along in how many years. Do you see anything that might be able to attack bacterial resistance from a completely different vantage point? Uh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there's all sorts of exciting opportunities involving you know, gene therapy and other Buck Rogers types of technologies, but I'm 59 years old. I don't expect that in my lifetime. And I think that the average physician who's in practice now should not expect it during their career. The research that's out there is amazing, and I think that we will see changes in the way in which we fight infections. But bacteria will be around long before we're all, we're all gone. I think that uh, Wilson uh, said in uh, one of his publications uh, years ago that we live in an age of bacteria, and they've been here long before we were around, and they're going to be here long after we're gone until the sun explodes. And right now, while we strut our stuff across the stage, yeah, the bacteria just smile at us with amusement because to them we're just delectable islands ripe for exploitation. <laughs> well, as we anticipate the explosion of the sun and other such uh, uh, grand gestures of our demise, do you have any hope around the horizon as far as this particular issue? The biggest opportunity for hope is responsible use of antibiotics, uh, not only by physicians but also in agriculture and, and globally that we recognize that we have a very limited resource out there, that our armamentarium is finite and is not going to expand. And with recognition of that and the opportunity for widespread communication through radio, television, print, peer-to-peer -peer education, we can affect changes in what is really a culture of overprescribing antibiotics. And if they can do that in the Netherlands, successfully. It could be done in other countries as well, including the United States and the United Kingdom. Very well put. And with that, I'd very much like to thank Dr. Stephen Brown, he's staff physician at Mercy Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, a pulmonologist, and if I may say so, a very articulate individual. Thank you. <laughs> My thanks again. You've been listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable. For more information, visit ReachMD.com. And thanks again for listening.